Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. You may be seated. Well, tomorrow our nation observes Memorial Day. And Memorial Day, as as Americans have come to know it, began in the, in the years immediately following the Civil War. But until World War II, it was known, uh, most, or most people knew it as Decoration Day. It was a day to decorate with flowers and flags the graves of fallen soldiers and remember those who had given, uh, as President Lincoln said, the last full measure of devotion to defend their nation. It was a day to remember what the honored dead had died to defend. Its origins go back to May 5th, 1868, when General John A. Logan, leader of an organization for Northern Civil War veterans, called for a nationwide day of remembrance later that month. On May 30th, he ordered for his post to decorate the graves of Civil War soldiers with the choicest flowers of springtime. He said, we should guard their graves with sacred vigilance. Let pleasant paths invite the coming and going of reverent visitors and fond mourners. And let no neglect, no ravages of time testify to the present or to the coming generations that we have forgotten as a people the cost of a free and undivided republic. See, Memorial Day is about reconciliation, remembrance, and reflection. And unfortunately, though it's a national holiday, its meaning has become all but lost to many. It seems that many Americans have forgotten or simply given up on the true meaning of Memorial Day. And so for many people, Memorial Day is known as the unofficial first day of summer. You know, the weather's finally warming up. The kids are getting out of school. People view the long weekend as just another chance to get away for a few days. Others associate Memorial Day with weekend sales at their favorite stores, while barbecues and trips to the lake and beaches are nice. I mean, what's the real meaning of Memorial Day? Because Memorial Day is an important national moment. It's a day to do more than barbecue. It's a time to remember the great price some have paid to preserve the historically unprecedented civil and religious freedoms that we as Americans have and for the most part take largely for granted. But the importance of Memorial Day is more for our future than it is for our past. Because it's crucial that we remember the nightmares and why they happened. I mean, we forget them at our own peril. The future of the United States depends in large amount on how well we collectively remember and cherish what liberty really is and the terror of tyranny. 
And it is up to us to teach the next generation the meaning of the day. They need to learn our history and the sacrifices that have been made for the freedoms they enjoy and all too often take for granted. And the future of of any nation demands that its citizens have a sense of history and their place in it. The failure to remember and honor the sacrifices by those who have gone before us will of necessity lead to a failure to preserve the very things for which they died. Because freedom is not free. And those who recognize its cost will continue to pay its price so that it will uh, be preserved, while those who do not will not pay the price, and so will lose it. There's a high cost to forgetting. In the words of George Santayana, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And so it's important for us to remember our nation's history and to teach it to our children. Because as President Ronald Reagan said, freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We did not, he said, pass it to our children in the bloodstream. And from the current state of things, it seems that we have not done a very good job of passing down the truth to our children. Because they certainly are not learning it in school. But the point of all of this, other than being a reminder of what Memorial Day is, the point of all of this is is, if this is important in the physical realm, and it is, it is of infinitely greater importance in the spiritual realm when it comes to spiritual truth. I mean, as Christians, we of all people should understand the crucial importance of remembering Because Christians are memorial people. That's why God has surrounded us with memorial. The entire Bible itself is a memorial. We meditated on it daily to remember. The Sabbath was a memorial to Israel's freedom from Egyptian slavery. And and the church switched it to Sundays as a memorial to Christ's resurrection and our freedom from sin. Israel's great feasts were Uh, Feast days were memorials, and now each time a local church gathers, each Lord's Supper celebration, each baptism, each Christmas celebration, and each Easter celebration is a memorial to who God is and to the great things that He has done. Christians are memorial people because the whole of our faith depends upon remembering As we remember who God is and and all that God has done, it it gives us a greater confidence as we face the future. And and these truths must be taught and passed on to our children. It's incredible. I mean, it, it is so important that we remember who God is, what God is, what God has done, and then pass this along to the next generation. And with that in mind, turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 4. You thought this was going to be some kind of a political message, didn't you? (laughs) You should know better than that. Joshua chapter 4, and uh, before we get into the chapter, let me just take a moment to set the context of chapter 4. 
In Joshua chapter 3, God demonstrated in a miraculous way his love and care for his people by stopping the flow of the Jordan River and drying it out so the children of Israel could walk across on dry ground. And God could do this, as Joshua said in chapter 3, because he is the living God and he is the Lord of all the earth. And for God to cut off the flow of the Jordan River is easier than for us to, to turn off a water faucet. But when God performed this miracle, he didn't do so simply as a means to an end. In performing miraculous events, or in performing this miraculous act, God was teaching necessary truths for for spiritual well-being, the the spiritual well-being of the Israelites and ours as well. I mean, God could have held back the water without any problem, but he chose instead to have the priest carrying the ark step into the edge of the water in obedience to his command. And when they did so, he stopped the flow. And then he had them stand in the middle of the riverbed on dry ground as all Israel passed over before them so that the whole nation saw it and knew that it was God that was doing this. I mean, this miracle was not merely about getting Israel across the river. This is about lessons to be learned and truths to be applied with regard to the power of God and the goodness of God and the love of God and the provision of God and His care and concern for His people. The lesson of the crossing of the Jordan was so important that the Lord commanded Joshua to set up a memorial made of 12 stones taken from the riverbed. Follow along as I read now verses 1 through 7 of chapter, Joshua chapter 4. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and commanded them, saying, Take twelve stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you and lay them down on the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each one of you a stone upon his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do those stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And so the Lord instructed Joshua to take 12 men, one man from each tribe, and they were to take a stone from the middle of the riverbed to build a memorial on the other side of the Jordan at Gilgal. And so after they had crossed safely over, Joshua commanded these men to now go back into the middle of the riverbed where the priests were still standing with the ark, and pick up a large stone and carry it to the place where they would camp in Canaan. And we can imagine what may have passed through their minds uh, as Joshua ordered them to go back into the middle of the riverbed. Now, no doubt it had taken a better part of the day for Israel to complete the crossing. Remember, uh, there were probably uh, around two million people. So it had taken, no doubt, the better part of a day, and the waters were still stopped, the ground still dry, but I wonder if they were thinking, how long is this going to last? (laughs) Because after all, it was at flood stage. 
Chapter 3, verse 15 tells us the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. So this was the time of harvest. It was at flood stage. And the men must have been wondering, how long can this last? But they obeyed God's instructions. Look at verse 8. And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded and took up 12 stones out of the midst of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord told Joshua. And so whatever fear uh, they may have felt, whatever apprehensions uh, they may have had, they didn't allow it to dominate or control their actions. And by faith, they re-entered the riverbed and took up 12 stones, as the last part of verse 8 says, and they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. There may have been another reason why these men obeyed God so readily. I mean, Joshua not only gave the command for them to go back into the riverbed, he also went back in with them. And so if the Jordan suddenly returned to normal, it would not only have taken the lives of the 12 men and the priests who were still faithfully standing in the riverbed, but Joshua's life as well. But in view of God's promises to Joshua and the children of Israel, there was, there was no chance this was going to happen. And so... Uh, together, these men tackled the job they had been given to do. But once in the middle of the riverbed, something very happened, or something interesting, very interesting happened. Look at verse 12. And Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and, and they are there to this day. I mean, to the day of the writing of this book. So while the 12 men were carrying their stones back to the other side, Joshua, there in the middle of the riverbed, began to set up 12 stones right at the feet of the priests. And we have no uh, scriptural record that God instructed Joshua to do this, and so it seems that it was just a spontaneous act of worship on his part. Joshua already knew what God's purpose was in having them carry the stones from the Jordan, so he apparently he just simply decided to set up these stones as, as an act of worship and praise and adoration and thanksgiving to God. It was, it was a personal testimony to what God had done for Israel in stopping the waters of the Jordan, allowing them all to cross safely to the other side. And perhaps when the waters of the Jordan subsided to a normal level, the stones became visible. And as the waters rose and fell over the next several years, each time the stones would stand out as a memorial to God's miraculous power and His love and care for Israel. Follow along as I read verses 10 through 14. For the priests bearing the ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. The people passed over in haste, and when all the people had finished passing over, the ark of the Lord and the priests passed over before the people. The sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh passed over armed before the people of Israel, as Moses had told them. About 40,000 ready for war passed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. I mean, you'll remember that uh, the sons of the tribe of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh settled on the east side Uh, of the Jordan River, but they were to send over armed men to help the rest of Israel uh, claim 
the promised land. And so they did. 40,000 men ready for war passed over with the children of Israel. And we read in verse 14, On that day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. And so here we see that God fulfilled his promise to Joshua from Joshua chapter 1 to raise him up as a great leader for Israel, even as he had done for Moses. And we read now, beginning in verse 15, And the Lord said to Joshua, Command the priest bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priest to come up out of the Jordan. And when the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan and the soles of the priest's feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. And so as soon as the priest's feet touched the dry land, the Jordan River started flowing again so that there was no way now that they could retreat. And there was nothing in front of them except their enemies. Israel was now on the other side of the Jordan in the promised land. But understand this. Life in the promised land was not going to be one big vacation after another. For Israel, the crossing of the Jordan meant that they were irrevocably committed to a struggle against armies, chariots, and fortified cities. I mean, for Israel, the promised land was a place of battle. And we need to understand that so many of our songs that, uh, that speak of us crossing over Jordan into heaven, that might make for a good song, but it's very poor theology. Crossing over the Jordan is not a picture of entering into heaven. It's a picture of entering into spiritual warfare in the Christian life. So when Israel entered the promised land, They were committed now to a struggle against armies, chariots, and fortified cities. It was a place of battle, a place that they were going to have to battle for. But most of all, the promised land was a place of trust because they knew they had to trust God with everything they had because the challenges only got bigger in the promised land, but so did the blessings. What an awe-inspiring sight it must have been for the children of Israel as they stood that day in the land of Canaan on the banks of the Jordan watching the completion of this great miracle. You know, as they lifted their eyes to look at the opposite side where they had stood that morning, they knew a new chapter in, in their history had begun. But following their shouts of joy and triumph, there must have been a, a gradual silence that crept over them so that everything seemed so normal again. And the Jordan's waters were rushing down to the Red Sea as they had done before, and, and for some it may have been very surreal. It may have been like a dream, you know. Did this really happen? And earlier that morning they had been on the other side of the Jordan, and now they were, they were on this side. How could that be? But it was true. We read in verses 19 and 20. Then the people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. The twelve stones from the Jordan were proof that the experience of the crossing the Jordan was no dream, that it was in fact a reality, that they really were now in the promised land. 
And we're told the stones were set up as a memorial in Gilgal, which was located just a little over a mile from the city of Jericho. Gilgal was their first campsite in the Promised Land. The setting up of the stones was was not an empty gesture. It was done in obedience to the command of God. And the reason for this is back in verses 6 and 7. Look at verses 6 and 7 again. Why were they set up? That this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. The purpose of the stones, was to remind Israel of what God had done for them. The stones were a memorial to help them remember. Here's a startling fact for you. I read that we forget 92% of the information we take in during our lifetime. And the older I get, the more I believe that. I read that during our lifetime, the average brain takes in 10 times the information found in the U.S. Library of Congress. And when I initially read this a number of years ago, there were 17 million volumes in the Library of Congress. Now, there's much more than that now. But at the time I read this, there were 17 million volumes in the Library of Congress, and our brains were told take in 10 times that. That's a lot of information. But the bad news is we forget 92% of it. I mean, it's sad but true. And the point is simply that we're forgetful. We're forgetful. And so we need reminders, which is why the Lord instructed them to set up the 12 stones as a memorial. And he did so uh, for other reasons as well. First of all, it was to be a reminder of God's power and provision. And we are all too prone to forget what the Lord has done for us, and that forgetfulness can be an enemy of faith. I mean, to forget means that we lose a sense of gratitude, but it also means that we lose a sense of expectancy. In the battles for Cain and the children of Israel, we're going to need God's divine intervention over and over and over again. They couldn't do this alone. And so it was important when they were facing a battle that they remember what God had done and and what He can do, that God's hand is mighty to save and that He is able to deliver and give the victory. And this is crucial for our spiritual well-being as well. There will be spiritual battles. I'm sure most of you know that all too well. There will be spiritual battles. There will be times of spiritual barrenness when blessings are few and far between. And so we need to remind ourselves of what our God has done in the past and what He can do. We must look back and remember God's hand of deliverance in our lives. And look, that that is one of the great blessings and, and privileges of having walked with the Lord for a number of years. Because you have built up all of these past experiences where you have seen God work in your life so that in present difficulties and battles, you're able to look back and and remember the the difficult circumstance in which God helped you and, and protected you and provided for you. 
when you're able to look back and say, the Lord is mighty to save. And each one of us has a testimony of how God has worked in our lives. And it's important that we remember the things that God has done. It strengthens our faith. It draws us closer to the Lord. It feeds the expectancy that God will do for us again what he has faithfully done in the past. And so we need to remind ourselves of what our God can do. Our our faith is nurtured by remembering what God has done. And having said that, next to reading the Word of God, there is nothing more important than reading Christian biographies and church history. And Christians who do not read these are really depriving themselves of great encouragement. I mean, Peter reminded his readers of how God preserved Noah and how he rescued Lot to encourage them that the Lord knows how to rescue the godly out of trials. And and that's what we learn from reading Christian biographies and church history. We see how God has worked in the lives of believers and in the church down through history. And so we need to remember what God has done. We need to remember, or we need memorials. One man said, there is nothing wrong with memorials, provided they don't become religious idols that turn our hearts from God, and provided they don't so link us to the past that we fail to serve God in the present. Glorifying the past is a good way to petrify the present and rob the church of power. The next generations need reminders of what God has done in history, but these reminders must also strengthen their faith and draw them closer to Christ. So we don't remember the great works of God in the past so that we can live with some kind of nostalgic, romantic view of the past as if the best days of our Christian experience are behind us. Because nothing could be further from the truth. No, we remember them as a point of faith. We remember them so that we can trust God for greater and greater works in the present and the future because we've seen and experienced His faithfulness in the past. And the children of Israel had the 12 stones at Gilgal as a memorial to remind them of what God had done. And we have our 12 stones, so to speak. And the Word of God is a living and constant reminder. Church history is a memorial and reminder to us. And thirdly, what God has done in our own lives and church are memorials, just reminding us again and again of God's power and provision, his faithfulness, his love, his care, and his concern. God deemed it necessary for a memorial to be erected at Gilgal because people are so prone to forget his blessing. And you'll remember, Jesus rebuked the apostles for failing to remember what he had just done in Matthew 16. And their failure to remember led to confusion and and a lack of understanding of his teaching. And it's true of us today, isn't it? I mean, how quickly we forget what God has done. I mean, isn't that true? You don't seem too willing to admit that. But we all know that it's true. At least we uh, so often live as if we have forgotten. And isn't this why Jesus commanded us to break bread and drink wine? And, and to do this, he said, in remembrance of him. I mean, as if we could ever forget the cross. 
But the Lord knows we could even forget that, hence the need of the memorial of the Lord's Supper on a consistent basis. And so the 12 stones set up at Gilgal was to be a reminder to the believing Israelite of what God had done and that God was working his wonders on behalf of the people. But the purpose was not only to remind Israel of what God had done. The most complete statement of the purpose for setting up the 12 stones is found in verses 21 to 24 when Joshua spoke to the children of Israel as the stones were were set up in Gilgal. Look at verses 21 through 24. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, What do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. God instructed them to set up the stone memorial so that parents might instruct their children. And this was the primary reason. It was so that years later when their children would ask, hey, Dad or or Mom, what's that pile of stones all about? And that would give parents opportunity to sit down with the kids and tell them about what God had done in, in bringing them across the Jordan. But not only that, it was also an opportunity then to go all the way back to Exodus and explain to their children all the things that God, has done, God had done. It was to be used by parents as an opportunity to teach and instruct their children the ways of the Lord by teaching them what God had done. It's really important for us to notice that Joshua did not instruct the parents that when their children asked a question, to send them to the priests or Levites or the elders for the answer. As parents, they were responsible to give their children the answers and to explain to them what God had done. And of course, that means that the parents have to know it to begin with. And the same is true for Christian parents today. Parents are responsible to explain uh, or to answer their children's questions and to explain to them who God is and what God has done and, and what being a believer is all about. Parents are to communicate to their children what God has done in their own lives. I mean, share with them their testimony. It'll make a lasting impression on them as they hear how God saved you and and about the goodness of God and the mercy of God and, and the power of God in your own life. I mean, thank God for pastors and and for children's ministry teachers and and workers and for those who who minister to our youth, but the primary responsibility for teaching the children of Christians about God rests with the parents, in particular, the father. When your children ask their fathers, he says in verse 21, what are these stones? Then you shall let your children know. We need more men in the church today who will take more seriously the responsibility to teach their kids about the Lord. May men teach their kids a lot of other things, as they should. And we can teach them to play ball, 
We can teach them to hunt and to fish and to shoot, and we can teach them to mechanic and service the car and change a tire and balance a checkbook. And, and there's a lot of things that we can teach our kids, but if we don't teach them the things of God, if that is not the priority, then we have failed them. We need men in the church who will take more seriously their responsibility to teach their kids about the Lord. Because in the final analysis, that's the most important thing, isn't it? I mean, when we stand before the Lord, it's not going to matter whether we played professional ball or didn't play ball at all. And that goes for anything else that we teach our kids to do. None of those things are going to matter when they stand before the Lord. That's, that's the ultimate priority. And too many kids today look at Christianity as being for, for women and, and old people because they don't see many men. I mean, the ruggedness of manhood. They don't see many dads worshiping and, and serving God. They don't see dad being open about his faith. They don't see dad worshiping and being excited about the Lord and the things of God. I was excited about a lot of other things. But what about being excited about the Lord and the things of God? We need, to, we need to see men in the church today who are going to stand up and be visible and be vocal about their faith. Men like Abraham, Moses, and David, men who are not going to be afraid to be expressive about their faith and in their worship. It was the dads who were to be the ones giving the instruction. But this would apply to single parents as well, men or women. The responsibility belongs to the parents. One man said the decay of parental religious teaching is causing enormous damage in Christian families, whereas the most beneficial results would follow if Joshua's advice was followed. You shall let your children know In the church, pastors, children's, and, and youth ministry, teachers and workers, I mean, we're here to come alongside and to reinforce what your children, what you're teaching your children at home. But you're not supposed to depend upon the hour uh, or so we have on Sunday at any other time uh, that the kids may have at church during the week to be their primary source of biblical and Christian teaching. And for the most part, so many churches today do nothing more than entertain our children anyway. We've entertained our children to death. And that's why so many leave the church. It's not because they're abandoning the faith. They never had the faith. Because they were entertained their whole lives. And the primary responsibility for teaching your children about the things of God belongs to you as parents, particularly dads. Just as it did with the Israelites, as Joshua instructs them here. But tragically, the children of Israel didn't continue to heed this command, did they? No sooner had they settled into the promised land I mean, after all the battles, after all the victories, after all they had seen God do. 
I mean, no sooner had they settled into the land flowing with milk and honey than their memories began to fade. And even the memorial stones were forgotten by the majority in Israel. I mean, one of the saddest, heartbreaking historical statements in all the Bible is recorded in Judges chapter 2. Turn, if you will, to Judges chapter 2 for a moment. Judges chapter 2. At this point, many years uh, had passed since Israel crossed over the Jordan and set up the memorial stones in Gilgal, and, and God had given them victory after victory so that after years of bondage and wilderness wanderings, they settled into the land and they were enjoying the, the freedom of having a place to live in, in peace with plenty. I mean, they, they were prospering. Something happened to Israel, and the end result is, in one sense, almost unbelievable, and in another it's not. Look at uh, verses 7 through 10 in Judges chapter 2. Let me read that. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, The servant of the Lord died at the age of 110 years, and they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath-Herez, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gayash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them, look, who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. How can this be? I mean, how how could this be? How could a people who had witnessed the mighty miracles of God ever forget them? I mean, what, what happened? The parents in Israel failed to tell their children what God had done. Not only at the Jordan River, but all of his mighty works and how he continued to give them victory after victory over their enemies in the promised land. The result, their children turned away from God and did evil and served the Baals in Canaan. Look at verses 11 and 12 there in Judges 2. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. In two generations, Israel had forsaken the Lord who was responsible for absolutely everything they had. Now, it's hard for us living today to comprehend how this kind of thing could happen in such a short period of time. But I want you to think for a moment about what has happened in the American culture over the last 40, 50 years or so. Our entire value system has changed dramatically, to say the least. I mean, that's an understatement. And think how this has affected the family. When parents neglect to teach and instruct their children in God's Word, His ways, His values in their home... It only takes one generation for spiritual degeneration to take place. And what President Reagan said about freedom is true spiritually. We don't pass it on to our children in the bloodstream. We have to teach them. 
We have to instruct them. Listen, your children are not your friends. They're not your colleagues. They're your children, and you're their parent. Relate to them as parents. Teach them, instruct them, discipline them. When they're older and leave the home, then there's more of a friendship that develops. But if you have small children in the home, they're your children. Teach them as children. Don't allow them to grow up on their own and and just to learn what they're taking in at public schools. When we as parents fail to teach our children by word and example, respect and love for God and His Word, when we fail to communicate to them who God is and what God has done, listen, we are on the sure road to spiritual disaster. And brothers and sisters, we are a long ways down that road to spiritual degeneration. We're seeing it today in the church, and as a direct result of that, we're seeing it in our nation. Christian families are being influenced and affected by our society's anti-biblical, anti-God value system. I mean, we even have churches now adopting uh, or taking in and, and, and just buying wholesale critical race theory and intersectionality, which are nothing but absolute Marxist ideologies diametrically opposed to the Word of God and everything we stand for. And so Christians are struggling with being in the world without being part of the world. I mean, Christians are allowing society's godless, immoral, materialistic values to influence their thinking and behavior. This was Israel's problem in Canaan. I mean, God warned them very early in their journey from Egypt to Canaan not to allow the culture they were going into to cause them to turn from him and to be sure and teach their children who he was and what he had done. Turn over to Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6, verses 12 through 15, God said through Moses, Take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from from off the face of the earth. Later, Moses made the warning even more specific, spelling out some of the things that would cause the Israelites to forget him. Turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 7 through 14. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, 
a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Beware, he says, I'm bringing you into a land, a fruitful land, a land where you are going to have every good thing, a land where you are going to prosper and live in peace, eat bread without scarcity, but don't forget me. Don't forget me. And tragically, Israel neglected these warnings. And when the new generation that was eventually allowed to enter the promised land was reminded of these truths with these memorial stones, they neglected to use the stones as God intended. They didn't teach their children about the one who brought them out of Egypt and across the Jordan with his mighty hand. And so again, one generation later, they were involved in unbelievable materialism, idolatry, and immorality. And as a result, God's hand of judgment fell upon them, and they were eventually, as you know, scattered to the ends of the earth. The parents in Israel failed to tell their children what God had done for them. And their children turned away from God and did evil and served other gods. It only takes one generation, folks. One generation for spiritual degeneration to take place. And so we need to ask ourselves this morning, what's, what's happening in our homes? What is happening in our homes? What is happening in your home and mine? What will our children and grandchildren remember about us? Will they remember that we faithfully serve the Lord night and day and that was the priority in our lives? Or will they remember a, a nice house, a, a nice car, expensive vacations, big bank accounts, big screen TVs, all the, the latest electronics and toys that money can buy, and all the effort put forth to accumulate these possessions and use them most often to the neglect of the things of God? What are we teaching our children by word and example? What are we teaching them about priorities? Are we teaching them that no matter what else we do in life, our relationship with Jesus Christ is our number one priority, and the second priority is, is your spouse, and then your family, and then others? Are we teaching them the importance of putting Christ first in every area of life? Are we teaching them that the Word of God is absolute truth? That the Word of God is our rule for faith and practice? 
that the Word of God is the final authority in our lives, that it's not up to us to pick and choose what it is we're going to obey and not. Are we teaching them the importance of reading the Bible and prayer, of loving, obeying, and serving God? Are we teaching them whatever they do, they're to do it heartily as unto the Lord? Are we teaching them that whatever they do, they're to lay up treasure in heaven? Are we teaching them the importance of that? I mean, what are we teaching our children by word and example? Because we are all examples. We are all examples. The only question is, what kind of an example are you? Now listen, that certainly is not to say the material things are wrong. They're not. Many in Scripture were uh, very wealthy. But you see, material things are not the issue. The issue is our attitude toward them and toward God. In the peace and prosperity God gave them, the children of Israel became materialists. They forgot who it all came from. They took credit for the blessings they had received from God. They lived as if they had done it on their own, that it all belonged to them, and they deserved it. Consequently, they were not walking with the Lord, and as a result, they failed to teach their children about the Lord and His ways. And so their children eventually turned from God to false gods, to gods of a pagan society. And as the Scripture says, there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that He had done for Israel. We need to ask ourselves some serious questions. You know, are we consistently reminding and teaching and instructing our children in the ways of the Lord? What evidences are there in our homes, in our personal lives, that God exists and that we love Him and serve Him and we are totally dependent upon Him for life and existence? In what ways do we talk about God? Do we convey to our children a reverence and respect for God and the things of God? In what ways do we convey to our children that everything we have comes from Him? Are we reminding and instructing them that our children of the greatness and the glory of God? The Lord knows we have a tendency to forget even the greatest, most glorious works that he has done in our lives. And when we forget what God has done, it's, it's easy to slip into apathy and complacency and to have a sense of entitlement and perhaps even to turn away and go after other gods, thus proving you never were walking with him to begin with. Do 
These are serious issues. Serious issues. These are the kinds of issues that stomp all over people's toes. Mine included. Is that the wrestle of this before I come here? And so we can respond to this in a couple of ways, I suppose. We could harden our heart. Let our pride get the best of us. Say, well, I got to know what he's talking about. That guy's crazy. Or we can have tender, teachable hearts and use this exhortation from the Word of God to examine our own lives, which is what anyone with any kind of uh, spiritual desire and wisdom will do. God commanded the 12 stones to be set up at Gilgal to be a reminder to the believing Israelites of what God had done and also to provide a visual aid for parental instruction in the ways of the Lord. But the crossing and the memorial stones had a, had a broader purpose as well. Look at verse 24. And there we're told it was so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty that you may fear the Lord your God forever. So it was a sign to all the peoples in the surrounding nations that God was powerful. And we know that the people of Canaan got the message. I mean, it went throughout the whole land. We read in, in Joshua chapter 5, verse 1, As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted. And there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. When God stopped the flow of the Jordan so Israel could cross, the people of the land knew that the Lord God of Israel cared for his people, that he kept his promises, that he went before them in victory, and that he never failed. I mean, what a witness to the world. And remember, one of God's primary purposes in choosing Israel and loving them as his own chosen people and performing miracles on their behalf was to use them as a dramatic means to communicate to the lost that God stopped, the God who stopped the Jordan River is the one true and living God. The God who is powerful in judgment, the God who is mighty to save, and therefore the God everyone ought to fear, love, and obey. And how incredible it would be to read that the Amorites and the Canaanites, upon seeing and hearing of this great demonstration of God's power and loving concern for Israel, repented of their sin, turned from their wicked ways, and joined Israel in following their one true God. But they didn't. Rather like Pharaoh in Egypt, who actually experienced the great plagues. Their fear soon turned to pride and, and arrogance, and they hardened their hearts against God and, and refused to acknowledge who he is. And how tragic. And in the same way that God loved and chose Israel, God has loved us, chosen us, saved us, delivered us 
to use us as a means to communicate to the lost his love, his mercy, and his grace through the gospel. You know, Jesus prayed in John 17, his high priestly prayer there in verses 20 and 21, I do not ask for these only, speaking of the disciples, the Jews, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. You know, we live in a world that is so dark and so wicked and and so broken. We live in a nation that's that way. A place where people are, are hurting, they're empty, they're lonely, but their biggest problem is that they're lost. They're lost sinners on their way to an eternal hell. That's, that's reality, folks. Hell is just as real as heaven. And that's where people are headed apart from Christ. And God has saved us and left us here to be light and salt. We've been left here to communicate to this lost and dying world that there is, in fact, an answer, that there is, in fact, hope, that there is help, and it's found in a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're here to tell them who God is. God is holy and just and righteous. I mean, so much so, He can't even look upon sin. And He is angry every day with the wicked, His Word tells us. But he is also loving and merciful, gracious and kind, and he offers to all men everywhere freely the gift of salvation through the finished work of his beloved Son. That's why we're here. We've been left here to live out the Christian life, manifesting the transforming power of the gospel and to share the good news with everyone as God gives opportunity. We're not here to live for ourselves. We've been bought for a price. We're no longer our own. We're here to live for the one who died for us. That doesn't mean we can't enjoy all the good things he's given us. It doesn't mean that at all. But that's not to be our sole pursuit in life. And wouldn't it be wonderful upon seeing God's love, His mercy and grace in our lives and then hearing about His offer of salvation that people would turn from their wicked ways and put faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation and then join us in following Him. And some do. But many more don't. Like Pharaoh in Egypt and like the Canaanites in the Promised Land. In their pride and arrogance, they reject God and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. They harden their hearts against God and refuse to acknowledge who He really is. And Romans chapter 1 tells us that all men everywhere know that there is a God and that He should be worshipped as God, and yet they refuse to worship Him and give Him thanks. They suppress that truth in unrighteousness. When the children of Israel spent their first night in the land, their hearts may have been filled with uncertainty and fear. 
But when they looked at the 12 stones taken out of the Jordan, they were reminded that God had done something absolutely amazing for them that day. And they could trust him for the days ahead. And the lesson for us is that we too must remember the things that God has done in our lives. It it strengthens our faith, draws us closer to him. It, It feeds the expectancy that God will once again do for us what he's done in the past. As one man said, remembering God's past grace is necessary to fuel our faith in God's grace for us in the future. This makes the memory one of God's most profound, mysterious, and merciful gifts granted to us. God designed it to be a means of preserving grace for his people. And he said, we neglect it at our own peril. The future of the church globally and locally and of each Christian depends largely on how well we remember the gospel of Jesus, all his precious and very great promises, all his warnings and commands and the successes and failures of church history so that we do not repeat them. And we must teach these things to our children. We must pass these things on to our children. As one man said, those who persevere into the glorious future are those who remember the gracious past. Loved ones, as we look back and are are reminded of all that God has done for each one of us, when we're reminded that we can trust God in the present and we can trust him for the future. Amen? And so as we commemorate Memorial Day as Americans, you know, let us do it with profound gratitude for the extraordinary common grace given to us when men and women laid their lives down for the sake of America's survival. And let us remember the past evils so that we do not repeat them in the future, but as Christians. Let us make every day, as long as it is called today, a memorial day. Let us take care lest we forget the Lord. Let us ever and always remember the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's stand and pray. of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website 
at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening, and may God richly bless you. Grow.